Well, Heavenly Father, we thank you for an awesome opportunity to be able to look into your word. Father, your word is life to us. It is like our breath. And I ask, Father, that as we drink in, as we breathe in your word, that, Father, you would show us not just the rich truths and facts, but, Father, give us again a picture of Jesus. Give us a picture of our relationship with you and all of the amazing things that you have in store for us. Truths, Lord God, that we need to seriously ponder this evening. So as we do that, God, would you guide us? Would your Holy Spirit take us through these truths, these adventures? And I ask God that we're going to walk away built up, encouraged, uh, enthused, excited, and that we're going to be wanting to share these truths with other people, even unbelievers. I just ask, Father, for your presence here to teach us and instruct us from your scriptures. In Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so if you could open in your Bibles or wherever, whatever you brought this evening that would show a map of Paul's ministry journeys. Paul's mission journeys. If you could just go ahead. If you don't have one, try and look on someone who does. And as you look on that map, do you see where Asia is? No, not the Asia today, but the Asia back then. Asia is a province of Asia Minor. Okay, do you see that in your maps? It is on the west coast of Asia Minor. And the probably the main city there is Ephesus. And Paul's first two missionary journeys, he wanted to be able to go into Asia because Asia is where, actually, that's where all the seven churches are that... Jesus wrote to, via John, in Revelation 2 and 3. Um, and actually, if, if you were to look at a map, you would discover that those churches in Asia are, uh, they start on the southeast, and they go up to the north, and then around to the southwest. Excuse me, they start in the southwest, go up north to the southeast kind of like an upside-down V. You can actually, like Jesus had the map in his mind as he chose each city um, and wrote, had John write to them. Um, this is the, Those cities are in Asia, and the this is where we are going to find Paul as he wrote 1 Corinthians. Now he leaves Ephesus, and he is moving into Macedonia and then down to Achaia where Corinth is. But we're going to see a problem that arose and was the reason, at least initially, that Paul wrote to the Corinthians yet again. Now, here's something that we need to, to realize. Turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 2. Chapter 2, verse 1, he says, So I made up my mind that I would not make another painful visit to you. I made up my mind I wasn't going to make another painful... Is he talking about his year and a half stay in Acts 18? It certainly wouldn't seem so. That wasn't a painful visit. He is now going to visit them again, so we discover that there is a visit between... 
his second missionary journey visit where he was there a year and a half and evangelized and started the church and, and such and, or, or at least caused it to grow so much. And then when he visits them in his third missionary journey, if you were to turn to chapter 13, he actually numbers them. In verse 1, he says, concerning this up-and-coming visit on his third missionary journey, he says, this will be my third visit to you. So here's what we realize. Do you see that in chapter 13, verse 1? This, is, this will be my third visit to you. There is a second visit that Luke does not record, and it apparently takes place in Ephesus. So, in Ephesus, not only does he write 1 Corinthians, but after he writes 1 Corinthians, or rather, very possibly before, um, but he visits Corinth. So, he probably takes a boat over to uh, Achaia, visits Corinth, and then comes back. We don't know exactly when in those that three-year stay, but that would help us resolve this idea that Luke tells us he was there for two years and three months, and then Paul says to the elders, I was there for three years in Ephesus. Okay, Was he rounding? It just seems odd that he would round up nine months and not down and just say, I was there a little over two years or about two years, but he says three years. And it was very possibly because several months he went and visited the Corinthians. Then he act, then he says in chapter two, verse four, for I wrote you out of great distress and anguish of heart and with many tears, not to grieve you, but to let you know the depth of my love for you. And I'm just going to let you know there are two takes on this. And number one, that, that, that this is referring to a lost letter that Paul wrote to them. And we, we don't have any record of that. I would have to suggest that is certainly possible. There could be a letter that may be somewhere in the world or God just did not want us to discover it and include it in the scriptures because it was of an unusual nature. We'll have to understand also that the apostles probably wrote other things uh, just like he had other conversations that just aren't recorded in Scripture. And that's fine because God had predetermined what exactly he wanted in what we call the canon of Scripture. And if there was another letter to the Corinthians, it was God's sovereign choosing not to preserve that letter. Some suggest that that letter is actually in the Bible, and it's actually in Second Corinthians, but it's in chapter 6. I'm not sure if you've ever heard of this before, but we're going to get there. And Paul goes on this very unusual digression. And you're probably familiar with the, how it begins. Do not be un, unequally yoked with unbelievers. This is a digression. We're going to see that the verse preceding it, the verse after it. This Paul, it, this is a clear digression. Some say it is so, uh, such a stark digression. It is probably the letter that he wrote to them. I'm going to suggest to you that it is not, it is not harsh. He is not, uh, pointing out severe issues in their life, 
My understanding is the other option, and that is this painful letter was 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians is unusual in that it addresses so many issues. Do you remember in chapter 3, he says, I can't even address you as mature. I have to talk to you like you don't even know Jesus. It's basically infants in Christ, mere men. I mean, he's really firm with them. And it's also in that same letter, I believe chapter 4, in which he says, do I need to come to you with a whip? (laughs) Okay? Um, And then he talks about expelling the immoral brother. And he, he, he apparently, that is apparently what he's addressing in chapter two, where he says, welcome this person back now that he's repented. You remember that section there, starting with verse five, going through verse 11. Um, the punishment inflicted on him, verse six, by the majority is sufficient for him. Now instead, you ought to forgive and comfort him. All right. And don't allow Satan now to get in and outwit you. He says in that very last verse of that section. So what I'm saying here then is there is a visit that Paul, excuse me, Luke does not record that apparently was a painful visit. And he now is referring to a letter that he wrote that personally, I believe, was 1 Corinthians that was, as he calls it, um, out of great distress and anguish of heart. And with many tears, okay? So, he then, apparently, and, and you see this in chapter 16. Go with me then to 1 Corinthians 16. Okay, 1 Corinthians 16. Verse 5, he says, After I go through Macedonia, I will come to you, for I will be going through Macedonia. Um, perhaps I will stay with you a while or even spend the winter so that you can help me on my journey wherever I go. Um, and then as you go back to 2 Corinthians, he says in chapter 1, verse 15, because I was confident of this, I plan to visit you first so that you might benefit Twice, and here's what he means by twice. I plan to visit you on my way to Macedonia and to come back to you from Macedonia and then to have you send me on my way to Judea with the collection that he talks about in chapters 8 and 9. So Paul seems to be, and he says there in chapter 16 of 1 Corinthians that he was going to send Timothy. He didn't send Timothy, he sent Titus. He didn't go to, so he was going to travel from Ephesus, if you have your map, travel by boat, ship, to Achaia, which is Corinth, then go up to Macedonia, and then back to Corinth, and then go to Jerusalem. And he didn't do that. And so here is what's going on with the Corinthians. This has, in some way, undermined his ability to function apostolically with them because they're thinking Paul is a liar. That's that's how they understood this. Paul says he's going to do one thing, but he doesn't. He does something different. He is not led of the Lord. In the meantime, you've read about these, twice he calls them super apostles, once he calls them false apostles. And these are men who preach a different gospel, 
They undermine Paul's ministry. They're apparently very eloquent, trained speakers. And so they tend to downstage Paul in his ability to speak. Paul, not saying that Paul wasn't a good speaker, but he wasn't trained. He wasn't or he was not an orator. And, but he had knowledge. We're going to get to that uh, in uh, later on. So Paul is, is not this little fireball dynamo preacher and, you know, jumping on the, the rocks or on the pews or wherever he's preaching and, and just really, uh, crafting his, his sermons so well. He had a burden from the Lord and he just spoke that burden. I don't know if he, he spoke it like a real passionate type person or kind of laid back. Uh, Jesus honestly gives me the impression he was a very laid back type of teacher, but he could speak very frankly and uh, sometimes directly to your heart and, and offend you. <laughs> but that, that was Jesus. Um, regardless, these super apostles appear to downstaged Paul and many of the Corinthians are turning away from him. And not only turning away from Paul, but they're turning away from the gospel that Paul preached. We're going to see that in chapter 11. So Paul has to do something here. Paul realizes that these super apostles have come in and undermined his ministry and his ability now to function as God's chosen apostle for them. Okay, how does he begin the letter? Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. Hello. And that's how he begins this. And this is important because of what I've just explained to you. So, what I have up on the board here is a very simple outline. I have it in three stages here. And in all honesty, we could probably couple these two together. Because... Um, with Paul's plans, he didn't send Timothy, he didn't send Timothy. Who did he send? Titus. Titus. He sent Titus. He did not go directly to Corinth. Instead, he went the other way around to Macedonia and then down to Corinth. But he, he instead of going directly to Corinth, he sent Titus there. So Titus probably went by sea, though he could have gone by land, but he sent him ahead of him. And he, he's dying to hear back from them because he, he's concerned. He's concerned about what's going on in Corinth. So <coughs> he gets to, he goes north. If you're looking at your map, he gets to Troas. That's still in Asia Minor. Titus is not there. Paul is worried. Paul is very concerned. Maybe there were serious problems Titus had to take care of, which means maybe the situation in Corinth is worse than Paul surmised. Or did he run into severe trial? Because that's what Paul had just left Ephesus due to. Remember the Ephesian riot? They were ready to kill him. Um, so he doesn't meet up with him in Troas. Then he goes into Macedonia, maybe Philippi, Thessalonica, we're not sure. But there he finally meets up with Titus. And what we discover is Paul, as he is from chapters 1 through 7, all of this, at least I shouldn't say all of it, the beginning and the end. Chapter 1, half of chapter 2, and then most of chapter 7 
is about this. And then he goes into this super long digression, super long digression. And here's the interesting thing. At the end of his digression, he has another digression. <laughs> well, I shouldn't say at the end. Well, well, yes, at the end of his digression, he has another digression. But it, it's these things that he touches on, we're going to see in his super long digression, are very important. Some of you mentioned there's some of your favorite passages in Scripture, okay? The fact that we have this treasure in earthen vessels. The fact that, get a load of this, God created us for this purpose. And the context is heaven. Um, the judgment seat of Christ in five chap- chapter 5, verse 10. The fact that we are ambassadors of Christ, and they have a ministry of reconciliation. He says, now is the day of salvation. Okay, right foot to the butt. Come on, you know. And, you know, many passages that we cherish are in this digression. But if you were to turn and look at chapter 2, verse... Let me start with verse 12. Chapter 2, verse 12. Now when I went to Troas to preach the gospel of Christ and found that the Lord had opened a door for me, I still had no peace of mind because I did not find my brother Titus there. So I said goodbye to them and went on to Macedonia. Here's where the digression begins. But, all right, but thanks be to God who always leads us in triumphal procession in Christ and through us spreads everywhere the fragrance of the knowledge of him For we are to God the aroma of Christ among those who are being saved and those who are perishing. Um, And and then he he goes on more. I'm I'm not going to read further. There's so much I want to cover today. So he basically goes on this digression and doesn't come out of this digression until the end, until, excuse me, until chapter seven, where he, he, he kind of gets, he kind of goes back and gets a running start to get back into where he was in chapter 2. And then he says in, in chapter 7, verse 5, For when we came into Macedonia, this body of ours had no rest, but we were harassed at every turn, um, conflicts on the outside, fears within, but God, who comforts the downcast, comforted us by the coming of Titus. There we go. We're back on track. Okay. So what I want to, so that you're aware of that, um, we are going to be uh, going through the entire book, but he then talks a little bit about when Titus was with them. Titus initially went to hear how they were doing. That's chapters 1 through 7, with a huge digression. Chapters 8 and 9, Titus. the second thing that Titus wanted to do was remind them, hey guys, don't forget the collection. When Paul comes around, He's going to get here soon. He needs you to have this collection for the Jewish Christians in Jerusalem because they're apparently going through a financial crisis and Paul has been collecting finances throughout his third missionary journey. He talks about the Galatian churches and the Macedonian churches and then he gets to Corinth and he says, I really want you guys to be ready. So he you can tell then that he writes his letter in Mas- from Macedonia. Titus has already arrived 
and then he sends his letter. We're not sure. It, you know, maybe Titus again, but he sends his letter, uh, this letter, to help prepare the way. And then, after talking about the collection for the Jewish, for the Jerusalem Christians, chapters 10, 11, 12, and 13, four chapters, he then defends his apostolic ministry. But he does so in a highly unusual way. Okay? Any questions that I see in? Yes? Yeah, did he have to take all the money he collected with him while he traveled? Yes, he did. Because isn't that a lot of money to carry? Yes, it is. So that's why he had a larger entourage. And Luke does not tell us how large this entourage was. He does talk about these people in chapter 20, and he actually, in, in Acts 20, and he actually says where they were from, um, but he does not talk about Titus, and Titus was with him. So there's probably even more people than this entourage that Luke lists. But yes, he's picking up, and, and generally when he would, it seems, it seems that when he would make a collection, he would have a representative from that, those areas. So you'll read about people from Galatia that came with him, people from, uh, Macedonia and so on as he's going through, and Asia, as he's going through and making this collection, he is, and remember, he was three years in Ephesus. It is possible that he started the collection while he was in Ephesus, but he sent people to make, to get the collection because he'd already been through Galatia. So that is a possibility as well. Again, Luke doesn't talk about it. Paul really doesn't. He just says that he has money from Galatia that he had just been through. He has money from people in Asia, people in Macedonia, and he's, now he's going to make the collection in Achaia, which is where Corinth is. Okay. So, yeah, those people helped protect him, protect the money as well. All right, let's go back and look then at 2 Corinthians. He starts off with a very well-known section of Scripture, and it's one that we all use, especially when we're doing altar ministry or when we're doing counseling, because this is this is a... A serious truth that when you go through severe trials, God ministers to you in a very personal, many times profound way, and he comforts you with truth, with truth, not just with the the circumstances working out for you, but with truth to help you get through those circumstances, those severe trials. Now, remember, Paul was in Ephesus and he had been through severe trials. The Corinthians, too, had been through severe trials and now they were comforting one another. They had comforted Titus. Titus comforted them. So mutual comfort going here as my uh, bucket of truth, if you will, is being filled up. That comfort is being filled up from that truth. I can now make that deposit into someone who needs these truths and my comfort with it, okay? And so this is birthed, he, he does this because he needs them to know, I've been through a lot, guys. It's been rough here. As a result, I have had to change my plans, okay? So he introduces this concept of when I've been comforted, I comforted others, 
But he does that to segue into this reality of severe trial and that he had an intention to visit them directly and actually visit them twice. So again, took from Ephesus, sail over to Corinth, go into Macedonia, again, collecting money and such and encouraging and building the, tr- the church up and then go back to Corinth with a second visit. But he realizes, no, that would be two short visits and I want to spend a longer time with them. So we don't know how long he was in Corinth. Luke talks about three months in Macedonia, but he doesn't tell us how long he's in Corinth. It almost seems as if it's short. I'm going to suppose, though, that it's not. All right. Um, and he, he, he has an emphasis on the spirit that I think is important. And he introduces this concept, and, and I'll say introduce, it's not like the Corinthians didn't know about it, that this, they knew about the Holy Spirit. Uh, he speaks of the Holy Spirit in 1 Corinthians, but in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 21, he says, Now it is God who makes both us and you stand firm in Christ. All of these severe trials, comforting one another, you know, Paul just didn't make this decision not to visit them or or to change his plans anyway on the whim. Um, And so he says, regardless, um, we stand firm in Christ. And then he says, he anointed us, set his seal of ownership on us, number two, and put his spirit in our hearts as a deposit, guaranteeing what is to come. So I'm going to encourage you. And this is all done by the Spirit. The Spirit of God has anointed you. And as we go through the sermon series, Life in the Spirit, we're going to see how that is that anointing is both upon Jesus and is upon us. And how we source the Spirit just like Jesus sourced the Spirit. So you are anointed. Every single one of you is anointed by the Holy Spirit. That anointing was done with oil uh, in the Old Testament, uh, foreshadowing the Holy Spirit being upon you. And so you are anointed by the Holy Spirit. You don't have to be a prophet, priest, or king to be anointed, though you, in essence, can function in all three of those ministries because you are in Christ and Christ is in you and he is the great prophet, priest, and king, right? The one who was sovereignly anointed. So in many ways in your ministry throughout life, you are going to function in these pa- in these ways, anointed by the Spirit. Secondly, you have been sealed by the Spirit. Now that doesn't mean that the Spirit has put a lock on you. Or God has put a lock on you and the Spirit is sealed in you. No, the Holy Spirit is that seal. Now, do you remember seeing the movie Risen? And I think all of you have seen this movie. They put the seal of the governor on there. Generally, a seal would just be like a rope tied. And if that is broken in any way, then that was a sign. Hey, you broke the governor's seal you now need to die. Or you've meant, seen many times wax put on envel- uh, yeah, envelopes and they're sealed, not because they lick the envelope because they didn't have that back then, but with the, but with the wax and then an imprint. And that imprint basically was like a signature. And you knew that 
When you got that letter, if the seal was broken, someone has read your letter. Okay? So, this seal is actually, we're told here, it's a seal of God's ownership on your life. It's not like the Holy Spirit's locked in you. That's not the type of seal. When Satan is thrown into the abyss and it's sealed, it's not because he's locked in. Well, he is, but that's addressed separately. He is sealed in there, okay? It's got God's seal on it, not to be broken on penalty of death. This seal that we have is God's mark of ownership on our lives. You were bought at a great price. Jesus purchased you as his very special possession, and he did so with his own blood. That is the currency of heaven. And in this exchange, if you will, he bought you, you are now his own, and then the third function or the the third uh yeah function of the spirit we see here he is a deposit guaranteeing your inheritance this deposit is the greek word arabon i'm going to write that up here arabon that basically means a deposit a first installment with the idea there's more to come. So that's why it's it's translated deposit guaranteeing. And it would be basically that we have the Holy Spirit and we therefore have our inheritance in part. All of this inheritance, as you read through the New Testament, we went through Book of Romans, you read about it in Ephesians, we'll see it when we get to the Book of Ephesians. There's inheritance that we have, but we have received it only in part. And then actually when we get to chapter 5, we're going to see even more of that inheritance. It's the full inheritance. And Paul says that is actually why you were created. And why you were created to experience this Transformation, no, I'm not going to get into it right now. Um, I'll get into it in just a minute. But that is the end game, okay? And that is the full inheritance. So the spirit of the deposit, he is a first installment. The second installment you get when you go to heaven. When my body dies and goes into the ground and my spirit goes to heaven, I start receiving that inheritance. And then... When Christ comes back and my body is raised and I receive my resurrection body, then it is full, okay? And it just, the inheritance you can just see increasing um, like the rising sun. Now, we come to chapter 2, verse 14, and it says, But thanks be to God who always leads us in triumphal procession. Now, this is key. Because what he is about to do now is kind of unwrap, to some degree, this idea of triumphal procession over the next several chapters. So even though Paul has suffered tremendous trials in Ephesus, he flees for his life, his plans change, his ministry in Corinth is being undermined, and the Corinthians, honestly, you, you remember what the word Corinthianize means, right? Yeah. I mean, the, the, that's, now that's the 
worldly Corinthians, the unsaved Corinthians, but so many of them brought, just like anyone in the world, they bring the baggage into the new kingdom and God has to deal with this so that they crucify the flesh thoroughly. All right? And so this is the process. We call it sanctification or glorification. Now, Paul then says, even though all of these things it seemed like they were out of control. And we were expecting t- Titus here. We didn't see him until we got to Macedonia many weeks, maybe months later. But now he is, he, actually, he, he's, we, he doesn't tell us that he meets up with him in chapter 7. Here, we come to Troas, wonderful opportunity for ministry. God opens the door, but his spirit is unsettled. And there's anguish still. And then he goes into this digression, but God leads us in triumphal procession. The difficulties that you encounter, you feel as if God is opening a door and it's as if Satan comes by and slams that door on you. And that's what happened here. Effectual door of ministry opens, but I'm not supposed to be here. God is moving him on. So we moved on to Macedonia and there's almost this sense of frustration if if Titus had just come when we were in Troas, then we could have camped out there. And what an awesome ministry time. But no, we had to move on. We needed to move on. And so he encounters discouragements. And he is now saying it doesn't matter what the circumstances are. God leads us in triumphal procession. Even in the midst of severe trial, he leads us in triumphal procession. Okay, then he gets into and and understand he's building this case. He gets into this concept of glory in chapter three. And in chapter three, he basically starts it off by saying, um, I I really need to consolidate this. Um, He basically says that the old covenant had a glory. The letter of the law had a glory. But as a matter of fact, it was so glorious that when Moses received it, his face radiated. His face radiated. We read about this in Exodus 34 when he comes down from the mountain. He'd been up there fasting and praying for 40 days and and receiving the law. And and I shouldn't just say fasting and praying. He'd been worshiping too. Um, he comes down and his face is so radiant that for people to look at him, he covers his face with a veil. Now, Paul says that there is another reason that Moses didn't get into why he wore the veil. And it's so because the glory was fading. And he, he says that, that Moses did not want the people to see that glory fading and therefore say something like, and, and, I'm guessing here from what Paul writes, but wow, the glory is fading. Is Moses still leading us with the original anointing or whatever they would call it? Is, is God still leading us through Moses? That's not a question that needed to be asked, okay? And so he did not want that them to see that glory fading. Uh, Moses says that people actually feared him. And for that reason, he wore the veil over his face. 
But there is a glory that came with the old covenant. How much more glory then comes with this new covenant, the heart of which is what? The gospel. And he gets into the gospel in chapter four, but the gospel. And there is now a transformation that takes place in us. This glory is just that in us that is associated with the gospel is now transforming us. And it transforms us from glory to glory. Now, the NIV words it differently. It, it says with ever increasing glory. Okay. That, that's what is, that's what he's actually saying there. Um, he's with ever increasing glory, but he words it from glory to glory. And it is a progressive glory that he then in chapter five, we see it manifested in heaven and he doesn't talk about the resurrection here. He did in the previous letter. But of course, there, where flesh and blood cannot inherit this new kingdom, when Christ comes back, we'll all be changed in the twinkling of an eye, the full manifestation of that glory. And we will appear with Christ. And we are going to be, remember when I was preaching on this, uh, Peter says, we'll be jumping up and down with joy. That's the type of joy that we will have. It's it's the leaping for joy type of joy where the glory of Christ is revealed. And I'm going to suggest to you that we were watching uh, Nathan Johnson talking about the eternal purpose of God, the eternal purpose of God. And I'm not sure he got into it there um, because he was talking about stuff um, that is like, parts of that eternal purpose, like your redemption or reconciliation with God, the fact that he's reconciling everything in the world, everything in heaven on the earth to him, that's an, a part of his eternal purpose. But the eternal purpose is the utter, absolute glorification of Jesus Christ. Now, I, I want you to think about this because that sounds so overly spiritual and religious and yeah, yeah, Jesus glorified, yeah, that sounds so religious. Listen to this. Why would you want to be where Jesus is totally glorified? We are glorifying him. All of creation is glorifying him. It's not just that he's really shiny, guys. It's that he is, you know, radiant with glory. There is, the glory is there because of who he is and what he accomplished. And so for you to be filled with such awe and wonder and, and just in rapture and, and, and jumping up and down with joy throughout eternity is because of what he did for you. So your reconciliation, your redemption is absolutely an integral part of this eternal purpose of God. And so it was, it's in heaven that we were created around his throne and everything that we do in heaven. And then in the, on the new earth, it is focused on this eternal purpose of Jesus Christ being glorified and and I can I I can only imagine somewhat of what that is like because if the, we're going to look in chapter 12 when Paul gets to heaven I think he got a picture of this eternal glory and he was not allowed to talk about it It was so amazing and so awesome and so impactful 
but he could he could only share just a little tiny bit this concept of eternal purpose without fully fleshing it out and and part of it i think is because you just can't now i'm jumping ahead of myself and then i'm not going to go there anymore so i'm going to get back to this okay because that's chapter 12 and we are still in chapter 3 guys so in chapter three, and I got to hurry because you guys got to take a break in a minute. So the, he's talking about this glory in our life being transformed from glory to glory. He goes to chapter four and he talks about the deposit of the gospel in us, but it is housed in jars of clay. What, what a very unusual place to put something so expensive. Now, I've heard, I've read, that generally people would do this because when a thief comes into the house and they want to steal something really treasurable, when they come into your house, if you have something really valuable like jewelry, where are they going to go? To the bedroom, to the ladies' jewelry box that's probably decorated with jewelry. All right, dead giveaway. You know, come take everything in here for me, please, is what it says. And, but no, you want to hide something really expensive? Put it in something so completely and obvious like a jar of clay. And this is what God has done. Because of the gospel and the Holy Spirit, this great deposit in us is contained in frail human flesh. That Paul then goes on this, you know, we are persecuted, but not abandoned, struck down, but not destroyed. We always carry around in our own, in our body, the death of Jesus. Now he's not going off on this pity party trip right now, but he's trying to explain his ministry. But he is also saying, guys, you're in the same boat. This deposit of the spirit, this gospel, this treasure is housed in you too, in this jar of clay, and it is fragile. And you get weary. And he says here, remember, glory to glory. This is, and, and so now he says, verse 16, excuse me, verse Verse 1 of chapter 4, he says, Therefore, since our through God's mercy we have this ministry, we do not lose heart. Okay? Why? Because we have this treasure. And then he says in verse 16, Therefore, we do not lose heart. So he went on this little bit of a digression. Paul's great for those, but he really had an awesome point in this. Here's why we don't lose heart. Okay? And now that we understand that he says, Though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly... We are being renewed day by day. Have you ever experienced that renewing of the Spirit of God, that renewing by God himself? Because we're frail, all right? But you have a deposit in you, the gospel, truth, and the Spirit. They always come together, truth and the Spirit. And because that is in you as a deposit, as a treasure, Paul says, I don't lose heart. Why? Because even though... He, he says, he calls them light and momentary, momentary troubles. For our light and momentary troubles are, et- are achieving for us an eternal glory that I'm going to suggest is but a reflection of that eternal glory that's found in Christ, but it, it far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes on what is seen. What is seen? That is, that is not a rhetorical question. What is seen? What do you think he's talking about here? Things that are temporal, right? Because that's what he goes on to say. Thank you. Um, but what are those temporal things then? 
okay? Our frailties, how the trials impact us. We want to stand firm, but our emotions can sometimes get the better of us. We don't want them to. We get physically weary. Our bodies die, as a matter of fact, all right? Don't set your mind on those temporal things. The fact that your finances just ran out, that's temporal. We, uh, I'm sorry, Marriage, okay, marriage is temporal. Don't get hung up on the fact that you have little tiny arguments, okay? Let's, let's see the fact that you are not each other's enemy. You're on the same side working towards this glory to glory, eternal glory, finally fulfilled in the eternal glory in Christ. Uh, keep your eyes focused on the things that are eternal. Stop getting caught up in these little things. That defending your rights or defending the fact that you think you are right, which causes most marital arguments anyway, right? Mm-hmm. And, and you know, some of these things are so petty. You know, some of them are important. You need to be able to talk them through, work them through, apologize and all of this. I understand that. And I'm certainly not making light of that. But we get caught up in these petty things. Get your eyes on the right things, the eternal things, Okay. These things that God has blessed us to enjoy, they are not an end in themselves. They have a purpose. Just like you have a purpose, just like your car has a purpose. Some people buy cars as an end in themselves because they like driving around, you know, look at me and, and look at that. That is them. That is an extension of them. Their homes, their homes aren't even very functional. They're, they're just Gaudy to look at and, I'm sorry, but to impress. I mean, if you have a home, well, of course you don't have a home like that because we're, we're wanting to follow Jesus Christ and God may bless us with a, a $2 million home. Well, I, then we can have our church there you go. <laughs> there you go. But there's a purpose in all of these different, including trials. So set your mind on, set your eyes on those things that are eternal. And then again, he gets into this concept of the Spirit in chapter 5, the fact that we're going to put off this jar of clay. This He now uses a different metaphor. He, use, he uses the term earthly tent in chapter 5, verse 1. We're going to put off this earthly tent, and then we're going to be clothed with our eternal dwelling. That That eternal dwelling is not your resurrection body, at least not in this chapter. Okay? It's, it's the eternal dwelling. It's heaven, heaven itself. So I'm absent from, when I'm absent from the body, his point is we are now present with the Lord. We are in the new Jerusalem in heaven that eventually is going to come down out of heaven to earth, but it's in heaven now. And that is where we're going to be with Christ. And we are going to be receiving the rewards do to us. And just a word on that in verse 10, the, they call it, the Greek word is bema. That is judgment seat of Christ. Just, just a quick word here. Um, this is for Christians. If you were to follow the pronouns us, we from verse five to verse 10, us, we is Christians. Verse 10, he uses us again, for we must all. Now, when he says all, I'm going to suppose he means all Christians. If he means everybody, 
unsaved as well, appearing before the judgment seat of Christ, then he probably would have changed his pronouns. Because he's throwing us here. Paul, you're using us, and you mean Christians, and now you mean like us as in the whole world, and this is very confusing. Um, and so he is saying all of us. If he if he was transitioning and saying the entire world, he would have said, and said something like, Everyone, okay. He, he would have he would have transitioned there, but he doesn't. He still uses us, we. Um, but may I also add this, and I hope this does not confuse you. He is talking to Christians, and I would say to you guys, all of us will appear before the great white throne judgment. Is that true? All right. And when we appear before the great white throne judgment, there will be no condemnation and no judgment. And you will not be, as long as you've trusted in Christ, you will not be thrown into the lake of fire, which is the second death, which is hell. You're not going to be. Christ paid that penalty for you. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him. So let me ask you this. Does that mean that there's not going to be a great white throne judgment for the entire world? No, of course there is. I'm just talking to you, even as Paul is talking to the the Christian Corinthians, all of us are going to stand before Christ's judgment seat. And we're going to receive what we have done in the body, whether good or bad. Now, I'm going to suggest to you that this judgment seat of Christ is not a separate judgment from the great white throne. It is in conjunction with it, or it is the same Christ has been given authority to be the judge of the world. He is the judge. The judgment seat of Christ is the great white throne judgment. However, for us, we need to realize that the bad things that we have done in our body, because he mentions that here, we must understand that there is no punishment in that. There's no punishment in that. There, it, it, however God works it out, but we will receive what is due us. Possible that we could see it as when we obey him and follow his will and do what is right, we store up treasures in heaven. And when we sin and go contrary to his will, um, I don't know if that, is, that would be subtracted, but it certainly does not add to those rewards that we receive, okay? So, Scripture is just not clear on this. We do know this. There is no such thing as purgatory. When I die, I do not have to pay off my sins. Christ did that for me, Okay? He is just simply saying here, as a part, I believe, of the great white throne judgment, which, again, who's sitting on that throne? Jesus is sitting on that throne. He has not turned, he apparently has not turned the keys of the kingdom over to the Father that we read about in 1 Corinthians 15. He is called the judge. He has received authority from the Father, John tells us in his gospel. He has received authority to be this judge. So he's the one sitting on that throne in the great white throne judgment. He's seen here as sitting on the Bema, the Bema seat, the judgment seat. But we will receive rewards and we will not receive punishments.
And so he is culminating this glory from glory to glory and this triumphal procession that God is leading us. And remember, I mentioned to you, look at verse 5 now about the purpose of all of this. Now it is God, let, let me back up, that little phrase, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up in life. Do you see that at the end of verse 4? So that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. Now it is God who has made us for this very purpose and has given us the Spirit as a deposit guaranteeing what is to come. So it is heaven that he made us for. But the reason why he made us for that, let let me word it this way, the reason God has given each of us a redemption story. God has rescued you out of darkness, out of, out of your sin, from your sin. He has set aside that which is old so that all things are now become new for you. We are born again. We begin to see life through the eyes of God, through the eyes of truth. And we start living that way and we are being transformed from glory to glory. Eventually, when we are with Christ, that redemption story is the very reason why we will be glorifying and magnifying him. This is, you see, God could have just created us just like the angels. Have you ever thought about this? Why did he create us so different than the angels? The angels don't sin, though they did once. And there was a big division there. They don't sin anymore. Um, God could have created us like that. Just like the angels. Now, in many respects, Jesus does say we're going to be like the angels. As Juliana said, no marriage. We're going to be like them. But we will have a redemption story and they will not. And for this reason, though there's rejoicing in heaven Gang, we are going to have the jumping up and down rejoicing type of joy because we have been redeemed. When Revelation speaks of a song that the 144,000 know and only they know, I believe that's their redemption story. That's their personal encounter with Christ in which now they sing to the Lamb. And, and, and so now we are marching forward with this redemption story and being transformed from glory to glory that these light and momentary problems cannot compare to the glory that God is building in us and will fully manifest at the end of the age. And we will be in heaven, in the, especially in the new heavens and new earth. But here we are seeing it's, it's just in when our bodies go into the ground, it's what they call the intermediate. Even there, we, it's for this purpose in heaven that we're going to be glorifying him. And there's just going to be an eruption of praise because it's as if there is a veil over us and we can see only the physical world. But now we'll be able to see the spirit world. We're going to be able to see Christ in all of his glory. And we're going to see this the, the, the manifestation of God's plan for redemption unfolded. And it's like, I get it. This is why he created man. And so that man had the potential to fall. And now there is this redemptive story that ushers from their lips for all eternity, glorifying God to that you were created, is what Paul is saying. Do you see this? Now, I kind of get it a little bit, a little bit. 
And I hope that God just continues to teach me and teach me. But I tell you, when I'm there, it's, it's going to be a light bulb moment for me. Wow. Yes. This is it. If I could only fully understand. And yet in chapter 12, you get this feeling. Man, I just want to jump into chapter 12 right now. And Paul has this, these revelations in which he goes to heaven. Um, he sees something that he can't tell us. And I, I think it's this eternal glory and plan unfolded and it's his light bulb moment. I get it now. Can't I just tell? No, 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 no. They only, I only want them to have a little bit right now. If they knew it all, I don't know, and I'm guessing here, I'm speculating, they would probably forget about the Great Commission and they would just be looking so hard. <laughs> Some of them might even take their life. I don't know, you know, <laughs> they just want to get there faster. No, and God says, don't do that. Don't do that. We need to be caught up in the Great Commission. We need to be caught up in, in the command to make disciples, encourage one another, build up the body. I do believe there's going to be a worldwide revival, et cetera, et cetera. Okay, so we've got a job to do here on earth. And we can't be preoccupied with that, but we have enough of what's going to go on there to inspire us and fill us with a living hope right now. It's just that there's so much more, church, so much more. And it's going to be all about Jesus, the eternal purpose. Okay, so where are we? So then he goes on and he talks about um, the fact that you get this idea that they have the privilege now of being able, in view of the fact that that's what you were created, that's why we're laying down our lives. That's why we are persecuted. How does he say it? Persecuted, but not abandoned, struck down, but not destroyed. Why would we do this? Because this is the goal. And now you Corinthians, God is forming Christ in you from glory to glory so that when you reach heaven, wow! And that's why we're ambassadors. We're bringing a message of reconciliation. This is your redemption song. That's why we're doing this. And that's that's how he concludes chapter 6. Okay? Uh, excuse me, chapter 5. And then he says, in verse chapter 6, verse 2, he says, I tell you, now is the time of God's favor. Now is the day of salvation. And he does not in any way want to hinder their progress in the faith. He says it this way in verse 3, we put no stumbling block in anyone's path so that our ministry will not be discredited. Let's go back to chapter 1. Is Paul's ministry being discredited? Yes, it is. He's going to really put it on the table in the next few chapters. And, um, And so... We need to take a few minute break here. So I'm going to do that right now, okay? Um, There's more that we can get into, and I'm going to skip over some stuff, but just go ahead and stand on your feet and kind of shake things out a little bit, rub the sleep from your eyes, drink a few more sips of that coffee in front of you, and, and we're going to get back into it. Arabon, it means a pledge or a down payment or a first installment. 
earnest money. Um, but when you're purchasing a house and you use earnest money, it's usually only uh, like $2,000. Um, and then the purchase of the house might be 100000 or 200000 or whatever. So I'm giving you 2000 now, the buyer says, but there's uh, there's more to come. But with the house, there's a whole lot more to come. Oh, my goodness. There's If it's a $200,000 home, there's $180,000 that's going to be coming. The so that's that's kind of a weak analogy, though it works. That is a down payment. It's just that God's down payment is more than just like a one percent down payment, two thousand out of two hundred thousand. Okay, um, the Arabone is a first installment, and then I'm going to pay it off at, at the at the end here after so however long, and that's going to be paid off when we get to heaven. Okay. So that's what an Arabone is. It's a deposit that guarantees something. De- in this case, deposit guaranteeing our inheritance. If you're hungry, there's like bread, cheese, pizza, and there's a Jimmy, if you're hungry, or... Are you serious? Hey guys, I'm going to jump into this. <clears throat> Okay, hurry, hurry, because I'm, I'm jumping back into uh, 2 Corinthians. Hurry, hurry. So to wrap up chapter 6, Paul then does this. He, he wants to bring a conciliatory note at this point. He's wrapping up this concept of this the fact that God leads us in triumphal procession in Christ from glory to glory. And he's marching forward. Chapter five, he culminates it and he, he gives a, he gives some conciliatory, some, um, precious moments types of, of feedback. And he says this in chapter six, verse 11, we have f- spoken freely to you, Corinthians, and opened wide our hearts to you. We are not withholding our affection from you, but you are withholding yours from us. As a fair exchange, I speak as to my children, open wide your hearts. You see that? Chapter six, verse 14. He says, open wide your heart. We've opened wide our hearts to you and you haven't responded. So open wide your hearts too. Skip down to chapter seven, verse two. Make room for us in your hearts. Do you see that chapter six, verses 14 to chapter seven, verse one is a digression. He actually interrupts his thought here. Now, some I, I have suggested to you actually believe that that digression is Paul's painful letter. And someone in church history, and it had to be really early, inserted it. Okay? Um, we do find that it's actually inserted in just a, a few manuscripts in different places. Okay? Um, and so that kind of has cued some people to say maybe it really wasn't in the original, though it is inspired. Okay. I, I disagree with that. Um, I think I understand their point, 
But I think he's trying to say something here in this digression. Truly, he is in the middle of a thought, almost the middle of a sentence. Open wide your hearts to us. Then in chapter 7, verse 2, make room for us in your hearts. Okay, he picks it up. So why the digression? I'm only going to speak to this briefly because he understands something that he is about to introduce in chapters 10 through 13 that is really hard. And that is that they are actually allowing these false apostles to come in and lead them away from Christ. And he is saying, what is it that's keeping them from opening their hearts? It's this undermining that's going on. Open wide your hearts to me. By the way, here's the reason why you're not doing it. It's because you have fellowship with unbelievers. Do not be yoked together with unbelievers. These false apostles were angels of light or or demon. They they were masking around as angels of light, as, as spokesmen of light, and they weren't. And he actually mentions this in chapter, uh, excuse me, chapter 11, verse 13, for such men are false apostles, deceitful workmen, masquerading as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for Satan himself masquerades as an angel of light. It is not surprising then if his servants masquerade as servants of righteousness, their end will be what their actions deserve. And he makes it very clear throughout these chapters that these are not just brothers who are preaching Christ out of selfish ambition or anything like that where Paul addresses in Philippians 1. He says, at least they're preaching Christ and because of this I rejoice. But these people aren't even doing that. They're false brothers. They have slipped into the Corinthian church. They're apparently trained speakers. They are persuading these many of the Corinthians. And it, 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 this is not just about theology, though. Because, let me write this on the board here. I'm going to write it on the board now. We're going to look at it when we get to chapter... Chapter 10. Knowledge. Paul says, I am not a trained speaker, but I do have knowledge. Knowledge leads to beliefs. Beliefs lead to attitudes. That is the disposition of your heart, the bent. When you believe something... If you truly believe it, and don't just you're not just giving lip service to you, it's going to affect your attitude. And when it affects your attitude, it affects your speech, it affects your actions, um, and, and actually beliefs also attitudes and values, by the way. And then these two together affect your speech, your actions, and your emotions. By actions, I'm I'm including, that's a function of your will, choices, decisions that you make. 
And so this is going to be important when we talk about strongholds. We'll get there in a second. But these men have come in with a different knowledge. It's leading them astray about what they believe. And it's affecting their attitude and attitudes and values. And it's leading them into speech actions and emotions, negative emotions that are wrong, that are undermining their walk with Christ. And if they're not careful, they are going to stray from their pure, sincere devotion to Christ, chapter 11. That's what's happening. And so he uses this concept of don't sow two seeds in the same field in the Old Testament. Don't use two fabrics to create a garment. Um, Keep these separate. Okay? Um, I'm not going to get into those Old Testament passages, but the idea was purity. And that was a shadow. And here we see the fulfillment of that in our actions. You are behaving like a mixture. And so he re- he rebukes them for it. So anyway, chapter 8, he gets into then the second reason why he sent Titus, and that was to remind them of this collection that Paul, when he comes, is going to be pulling together. Okay, He's already told them, 1 Corinthians 16, he said, First day of every week, which would be Sunday, set aside a certain amount of money in proportion to your income. I do not believe that he is saying set that money aside and put it under your pillow the first day of every week, because then he says that way I won't have to collect it when I come. Well, if they're putting it under their, their not pillow, but mattress, then they're going to have to, he's going to have to collect it. So what would, where would they take the money on the first day of the week? This is a clear indication that the church would regularly gather on the first day of every week that is called the Lord's Day, Resurrection Day, and not on the Sabbath. They had abandoned that practice. They met the first day of the week. They brought the money in keeping with their income so that when Paul came to Corinth, the money was in one location and he didn't have to collect it. Okay. So he gets into this collection. Look at this chapter eight. He says now, verse one, now brothers, we want you to know about the grace that God has given the Macedonian churches. There is a little bit of a motivation that he is wanting to give to them. He wants to brag about the Macedonian churches. And he kind of tells us in the next paragraph or two, why he's doing it. Because I want to stir you up. I want you to say, you know what? The Macedonian churches can do it. So can we. That type of thing. He's wanting to motivate them. So let me tell you a little bit about the Macedonian churches. Verse 2. Out of the most, the most severe trial. Remember, Thessalonica is in Macedonia. Thess- Thessalonians starts off talking about, he uses the phrase, severe trials. Luke doesn't tell us a little too much about the severe trials, a bit, not too much, but it was so severe that these Jewish Thessalonians followed, went all the way to Berea to get rid of Paul and Silas and Timothy. And so this severe trial, he says, has also come upon you. I'm so sorry about this. But these Macedonians went through severe trial. He goes on and he says, they're overflowing Macedonians, overflowing joy. Not because things were going great, but because things weren't. Trial, severe, most severe trial. Their joy and their extreme poverty 
welled up in rich generosity. Get a load of that. They were so joyful in the midst of their trial and they were so poor that together it combined to make this decision. We're going to give. And he, he puts it this way. He says, for I testify that they gave as much as they were able and even beyond their ability entirely on their own. I didn't have to persuade them. I eat like I'm having to do with you. Okay. Yeah. And what an amazing picture of a church that in the midst of how hard things are, they're, they're accessing God's grace and it's stirring them up to joy and this rich generosity, even when it's beyond their ability. And he, he encourages them and he says, you know what, later on, um, verse 12, for if the willingness is there, the gift is acceptable according to what one has, not according to what one does not have. But yet the Macedonians gave even beyond that. I don't know, maybe they fasted for a week and said, I'm taking all of this money and I'm giving it away. It could have been something like this. But guess what? They had very little to eat anyway. Now, I don't know if they had very little to eat, but I'm just using this as an example. Okay. So even out of their poverty, and even they even reached to what they didn't have, what they that really couldn't afford to give, they gave even that. And then I'm going to skip over here to chapter 9. He says, remember this, verse 6, remember this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows generously will also reap generously. Each man should give what he's decided in his heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion. Though Paul might add, I'm really trying to encourage you to give, though. All right. So he's very tactful in how he presents this, but he is, he's, he's still motivated each. So, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And that hilarious is the Greek word there. We get the word hilarious from that word. And of course, it's written down here, cheerful giver. And, and God wants us to be hilarious givers that give a lot, that are generous. They don't give reluctantly. Oh man, end of the month, got to write this tithe check. You know what? If I held on to some of that, we'd be able to pay that car payment. Hilarious givers. And God's able to make all grace abound to you. Even when you fasted for a week and you gave out of your poverty, he's able to make all grace abound to you so that in all things, at all times, having all that you need, you will abound in every good work. That is awesome. He says, skipping down, now he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will also supply and increase your store of seed and will enlarge your harvest of your righteousness. You will be made rich in every way so that you can be generous on every occasion. And through us, your generosity will result in thanksgiving to God. And that's what happened. Imagine when the Jerusalem church got that. Can you imagine how blessed they were? It wasn't just a few bucks to put in their pocket. This was a rich, generous offering that Paul had. He had a huge entourage of men with him to help protect it. And also to make sure that when, to make sure both for the churches in Jerusalem and those who gave the money, there was no embezzlement. There was nothing hanky-panky going on with the money or moving funds from one account to another type of thing, right? 
using misappropriation of funds. No, none of that. Strict accountability, but there was going to be, it was going to result in Thanksgiving. I'm going to put it this way. Guys, if God can get it through you, he will get it to you. That's, you've heard that before. That's what this, that's, that principle is based on this scripture passage here. That's what the Macedonian church is. That's what Paul's hoping the Corinthian church is going to do. That they're going to give and give and give. Well, I'm going to move forward here to chapter 10. And in chapter 10, he talks about strongholds. Um, I'm not going to say that these strongholds are not strongholds of lust or anger or worry or fear. They could certainly manifest that way. But Paul is more concerned about what takes place in the mind, the knowledge, the beliefs, the attitudes and values. All of that takes place in the mind. We know that that is his focus. And again, I am not saying that he is not addressing wrong actions or speech or negative emotions, etc. He, But his focus is on the what's taking place in the mind. And he is telling us that the battlefield is the mind. It is the mind. So he, he, he talks about that we do not live, the end of verse two, we don't live by the standards of this world. For when we live in this world, we don't wage war as the world does. The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. See, those are, those are physical and these are spiritual weapons, spiritual weapons. Remember, Paul says he has weapons of righteousness in his right hand and in his left earlier, and we didn't read that, but it says that earlier in 2 Corinthians. Weapons of righteousness. We, as apostles, we have weapons of righteousness in our right hand and in our left. So anyway, he goes on and he says, the weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. A stronghold is simply a fortress. It can be either a good stronghold or a bad stronghold. In this case, it's a bad stronghold. It is a demonic stronghold. It is a stronghold that the super apostles have gained access to and deposited, formed, helped build, if you will. You build fortresses, right? Build strongholds. They have built this with their lives, in their minds, okay? And it is undermining, chapter 11 gets gets to their pure, sincere devotion to Christ, but it says, we, verse 5, we demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. And we take captive every thought to make obedient to Christ. If you want to gain victory over physical or or sinful strongholds or strongholds that are action-oriented, then you've got to deal with knowledge, beliefs, attitudes, and values. You have to deal with the mind. Um, In psychology, even Christian psychology, there are those who are Christian behaviorists. Okay, um, I, I think they're going to be missing something if they don't deal with the mind. If you want behavior to conform to the word of God, then you have to bring captive every thought to the obedience of Christ. And that doesn't mean stop thinking lustfully about that girl. It's talking about thinking truth as opposed to lies. Truth, anything that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. God is faithful. He is loving. 
He never leaves us. He never abandons us. We are not orphans. We are children of God with an inheritance, at least the down payment on that inheritance. We are, and you can just go on and on who we are in Christ. This is truth. And Paul is saying, he's going to get into how these people have come in and they're undermining all of that. Why? Because, I mean, the, just, just that one phrase, in Christ, who we are in Christ. If we change Christ and who Christ is, that changes everything as far as who we are in Christ, doesn't it? If you start talking, well, I won't even get into it, what Gnosticism got into and, wow, horrible, mixed up stuff and perverting Christianity. And we, we get what some people have called incipient Gnosticism, which is the beginnings of Gnosticism in Paul's day, but just the beginnings perverting Christianity. People, see, not everybody would just simply say, well, the 12 apostles, they're the guys that we're going to listen to and they're the only guys that we're going to listen to. Well, what about Luke? What about uh, Silas, Timothy? What about Titus? What about Apollos? No, there were others who were preaching the gospel, but then there were others who were preaching a perverted gospel and they were actually bringing division in the body of Christ. And they were taking generally... Um, Greek philosophy and Aristotelian philosophy and, and such. Um, and Aristotle did talk about God, but not in the biblical way necessarily. And so they would mix this stuff in. Origin aired in this. And they would mix it in. And before you know it, you could come up with a bunch of spiritual, theological gobbledygook, Really? And that's what these people were doing. And they were under, they started teaching a different Christ. Um, Ebionism was a Jewish sect and they denied the deity of Christ. Docetism kind of did the opposite. They said that Jesus, when he appeared, he only seemed, he was God, but he only seemed to take on human flesh. Well, that's like mysticism stuff there. No. This is Jesus. God taking on human flesh. And so anyway, you, all of these, if you, if you have a sinful, physical stronghold in your life, emotion, like worry, fear, anything, it goes back to your knowledge of God. It goes back to the truth. All of it does. Why? Because the mind is the battlefield. Not, not just the actions. The mind is the battlefield. Okay, did someone have a question? No, I was just going to say, Thomas, yeah, 1200s, yeah, Thomas that, Aquinas that did, yeah. A lot of damage, like they persecuted Galileo for, because of things that were taught by Aristotle that were considered scripture truth. Yeah. The Western world generally did take in a lot of Greek philosophy, and they uh, syncretized it with Christian theology, the Bible, and... Yeah, whenever you do that, that's why there was no, not to be any intermarriage. That's why, yeah, okay. A lot of syncretism in the Old Testament, but in the New Testament as well. So let's move on. I'm going to have us go ahead and jump over to, we're going to end with just a little bit in chapter 11 and 12. Um, Paul 
realizes that these supposed super apostles, and that's actually a literal translation, super apostles. My translation um, uses this phrase, for example, in chapter 12, verse 11, and it puts quotes around it, super apostles. Anyone have the NASB? I didn't check it out. Do they use super apostles as well? Anybody have the NASB? Chapter 12, verse 11. Okay. It's... <laughs> um, it's it's actually a uh, we actually get our word super from this word, okay? Super or superlative or we could say the most, the best, the most excellent. Okay, what did the NASB say again? Most eminent. Most eminent. And again, that is, that's, this is the word super. That's where we get our English word super. Okay. Again, highest, most, best, most excellent, etc. It, it's, I, I, I'm, it's Hooper, I'm trying, Hooper Leon or, or something like this. Um, but we, Hooper, super, Hooper. Okay. That's where we get super. All right. Um, so these super apostles, have been undermining Paul's ministry. They're talking about, you know, all of their nice little fancy philosophies and, and pulling it all together like a very neat package with a bow on top. And Paul says, number one, I am not going to boast about my abilities. I'm not going to do that. I'm not a trained speaker. I'll confess that to you but I do have knowledge. I may not be a trained speaker. I do have knowledge. I do have this right here. And if I'm going to brag about anything, I am going to brag about being, oh, you drove me to it, the best servant. He doesn't say it quite like that. He just says, a better servant than them. I outserved them. And how do I know this? Let me tell you how many hardships I've been through. Let me list for you. And he does. This is Paul's, I don't know what you want to call it. Uh, he says, I've worked much harder. Excuse me, chapter 23. Are they servants of Christ? I'm out of my mind to talk like this. I am more. He says, I have worked much harder, been in prison more frequently, been flogged more severely. Like, these are my trophies. Yes! Look at me. I, I, I was flogged ten times more than you were. I've been in more shipwrecks. I've been in four shipwrecks. Five times I received from the Jews the 40 lashes minus one. Um, stoned. Uh, three times, uh, beaten three times with the rod. Once I was stoned, uh, he goes, three times I was shipwrecked. This is 55, 56 AD. The shipwreck Luke talks, talks about happened in 50, about 59 AD. So he's not even including that one. So he's been in at least four shipwrecks, if not more. So he speaks about three and he says, I spent a night and a day in the open sea. He goes on and he talks about all of these things. Verse 30, if I must boast, I will boast about the things that show my weakness. And why does he do this? Chapter 12. Chapter 12, he gets into all, he, he gets into this concept of why God needed to make Paul weak. Why Paul 
ended up being a not just a um, an earthen vessel or a clay pot, but a broken one, physically. And it's because of all these surpassing revelations that he has. And in the very beginning of chapter 12, he says, I know a guy. Let me tell you about a guy I know. And you realize that he's talking about himself, okay? Because he says here, um, he heard inexpressible things that man is not permitted to tell. I'm sorry, verse 5. I will boast about a man like that, but I will not boast about myself except about my weaknesses. Even if I should choose to boast... I would not be a fool because I would be because I would be speaking the truth. But I refrain so no one will think more of me than is warranted by what I do or say. To keep me from being conceited because of these surpassing great revelations, there was given me a thorn in the flesh. A messenger, Greek word there is angelos, a messenger, an angel, a messenger of Satan to torment me. And there are basically three views about what this demon did that tormented him. Number one, they believe that this torment was some sort of sickness, malady, illness um, that he had that he did not get rid of. Um, or a physical ailment like the uh, possibility of contracting something like malaria in one of his shipwrecks. And that was one of the main reasons why John Mark left. As soon as they landed on the first missionary journey, John Mark leaves and it speaks very graciously about him, though Paul later says because he deserted us. He didn't get homesick, I can assure you of that. Um, though some think that it, something happened and very possible that was when one of the shipwrecks occurred. We don't know. But then he says it forced him to go to Galatia instead of more probably into Asia. Probably, I think Ephesus was on Paul's heart from the very beginning. And he didn't get to Ephesus until his third missionary journey. But he may, he may very well have had poor eyesight as a result of whatever he had contracted. Um, and it stayed with him. Some think it's that. Some think, how many of you have seen Paul, um, Apostle of Christ, the movie, okay? And in that, they say that his thorn in the flesh, this demon, was nightmares or flashbacks of when he would, um, when he saw S Stephen stoned to death, and he was an accomplice to that. That when he threw people, Christians, into jail, um, he even did so, and many of them died. And it was because of him. And some think that it was that torment that he had to deal with. Um, personally, I, I just think that it's those trials that he lists in chapter 11, that there was a demon behind all of these issues. Um, but regardless, the end result was Paul was weak. Yes? Oh my goodness. What? One part? What? It's just basically the part of Paul's body. All right. Yeah. It's a book about demon possession and like casting out demons and stuff. But in one of the parts that I read, it was saying how like 
Paul was possessed in one part of his body. And, and and that that fair enough. That would be another view in which they believe that this buffeting spirit, this thorn in the flesh, was a sin that Paul could never get rid of. But it doesn't list any like in the weaknesses. He says, yeah. "Well content with my weaknesses, with insults, distresses, persecutions, difficulties." He says nothing about sin. Right. right. Yeah. So I. That's why I disagree with that. And, and I didn't even share it with you. So thanks a lot for sharing it with us, Rose. No, that, that, that's fine. There, there is that view out there. It's just that I'm, I'm actually very strongly opposed to it because Paul is glorying in his weaknesses and this buffeting spirit is a weakness. It can't be a sin because Paul would never glory in a sin. And, and he's glorying in it because of his conclusion. When he says, I prayed three times for this thing to go from me, I mean, God, please deliver me from this sin in my life. And God each, God said, no, I'm not going to do it. My grace is enough for you. What? Because Paul, when you stumble into this sin, I just want to highlight my grace. Okay, but I'm not going to rejoice in it. I'm not going to rejoice in my sin. And Paul rejoices in his weakness because it's not a sin, but because God said to keep you humble because of these surpassing visions, I need to do this. And I, when you are weak, I need you to know this. My grace is going to be enough for you. When you are physically exhausted from literally working day and night with your tent-making business and the ministry you've got there, and you're casting out demons, and you're up late counseling, and then you're called at two in the morning to put in, put a, uh, or, or send a, uh, an apron over to this person and lay it on them, and they're, the demon comes out, or they're healed, and all kinds of ministry opportunities, and then in the middle of the night, knock on the door, Paul, they're coming for you. I'm sorry, I know it's three in the morning. They're coming for you. If you don't leave in five minutes, they will be here and they will put you in jail. Let's go. Any number of different things, fleeing for his wife, what life, not fleeing for his wife, but fleeing for his life, being caught and then being beaten because he didn't always escape. He never, he didn't always have those heads up. But you know what? God said, my grace is enough for you. It's enough for you. It is enough for you. And, and I can't help but wonder, wow, the beginning of chapter 12 and this section right here are paired together for a really good reason. Do you remember when Paul gave his heart to Christ, Ananias came to him and said, Paul, receive your sight. And he says, but know this. You are called to bring the gospel to the Gentiles and to, you must, how does he word it? I want you to know how much you must suffer for my name. How would you like to have that call on your life? Part of the purpose of my life is to know the sufferings of Christ. I have chosen you to suffer for me. Jesus, I, I like the preaching thing. I like the casting out of demons and the really cool part of ministry. But, you know, that suffering stuff, really? Is that what you're calling? That's exactly what I'm calling you to, Paul. But know this too, the flip side. Paul 
walked with Jesus in a way that I never have or ever will. I seriously doubt Jesus is going to teach me directly. I don't need that. I've got the word. He'll he'll give me the full revelation when I get to heaven. But that is what Paul had. Jesus taught him directly. He says apparently 14 years um, ago, which from 55 or 56, that would put it around 41 or 42 AD. Paul had probably known the Lord for 8 to 10 years by this time. He is probably doing some ministry with his base in Tarsus. It is probably just before he is called to Antioch. And he has this encounter, this revelation in which he's caught up to heaven. He doesn't know if he's there physically or just in the spirit, but he is there. And the Greek word that's used here for inexpressible things, do you see that in verse 4? I was caught up to paradise, the third heaven, the first The first heaven being the sky, the second heaven being the universe, the third heaven being the throne room of God. That's how I understand the third heaven, which is paradise. Paradise is heaven. He heard inexpressible things. This Greek word can either mean things that you are not physically able to say or speak. It's a, you just can't talk about it. You can't, they're inexpressible. Many times it's because it's babble, but It can also mean things that you are not permitted to tell, which seems to be the clear indication here. It's not that he can't describe heaven. It's that he was not permitted to. He saw things. I believe he saw the full manifestation of God's glory or Jesus's glory. I I, I want to be careful. I don't want to say that because the full manifestation of Christ's glory is going to include us. And we are not all there. That will happen at the end of the age. But he saw a manifestation of Jesus' glory, the eternal glory of God, the e- all of history marching forward, and he gets a glimpse of this. And it is so amazing and so overwhelming. You can only imagine, man, I can hardly wait to tell the churches about this. Oh, wait a second. An angel probably said, mm-mm, zip the lips. You can't talk about this. Oh, come on. I, I got to be able to tell him some. No, the Holy Spirit's going to let you say just a teeny tiny bit, and that's it. That's it. Just a little bit of a, no more. Mm-mm. And for whatever reason, and I've got my thoughts on it for whatever that's worth, but can't say anything. Wow. Can you imagine that type of revelation that you carry around with you and conversation turns towards heaven and you want to jump in and you say, oh, but let me tell you, and you can't say anything. All right? Um, yeah, you know what it's like when you know something and the person you're talking to doesn't and the conversation goes there and it's like, I can't say anything. I know so-and-so is going to propose to you and it's going to be so amazing. I'm a part of it. I can't say anything. <laughs> So Diego, you know, he had all this this plan for proposing to Rose, and it was very romantic, and it was like, zip the lip. And I told everybody in my household, you cannot say a word to her, all right? Not a word. And Diego did a super job, very romantic. But can you imagine Paul throughout his life? And I can only imagine that that revelation helped him as he went through those trials Now, granted, we do have this understanding of heaven and the full manifestation of God's glory, but um, we just know this, God's grace is going to be enough. 
It is always going to be enough. I'm way over time. I'm going to close in prayer right now. Father, thank you that your grace is enough. Thank you, Father, that even the hardest, severest trial, Lord God, there can be joy and that joy can well up to incredible generosity even when we have so little to give. Father, thank you for the examples that we have in Scripture of people like that. Thank you, Father, for Paul accessing your grace, the Macedonians accessing your grace. God, that's what I want to do. I want your grace to so transform me from glory to glory. I, I, I want this to be my heartbeat, my passion, to even in the midst of incredible weakness, be able to see your grace displayed in my life. I want to see that for everyone here because your grace is enough. Does help us, God, as we take these truths with us and live them out every day of our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.